0: From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson.
1: Welcome to a new Sox Machine Live. I am your host, Josh Nelson, alongside Jim Margulis, the managing editor of SoxMachine.com. It is late Thursday night, 7 p.m. Central time on October 26th. We have a World Series matchup. Just like everyone predicted, it's the Texas Rangers against the Arizona Diamondbacks in the fall classic. Uh, kidding, of course. But it is one of our favorite times of the year, even though Jim and I would rather talk about the White Sox playing in the World Series. No, it is the offseason plan project. When you're coming off a 101-loss season, everybody wants to rinse this bad taste out of their mouth. And here we are giving everyone the opportunity to act as the general manager of the Chicago White Sox to be in Chris Getz's shoes and run their own off-season plan. And Jim, this is always a very fun exercise, but I feel coming into this off-season, like the last two off-seasons have been about try to build a playoff team, this particular off-season plan project, I think it go in a variety of directions.
2: That's been the most difficult part of trying to set the template, the expectations for what people might want to build and the budget number that goes along with that. Um, Because, like you said, the objectives were very clear the last two years, last three years, in fact, of just building a postseason team, had a rough idea of what the payroll limit might be. And sure enough, like both of the last two years, I set the payroll limit at one hundred ninety million and they came in at, I think, like one hundred ninety three and one hundred eighty three. So basically around that number, give or take a uh, like mid-grade reliever, which Rickon inevitably signed. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> this time around, it's like, well, you know, I could set the level one thing, but people might come in 40, 50 million under if they think like there's no way of really making contender out of this team. It's more about like trying to insulate the prospects who are going to be ready or might be ready at the end of the year or at the beginning of next year and just how do you get by? How do you present like a team that's professional, but also, uh, um, you know, not worry about not settle them with uh, the expectations that basically were ruined last year. So should be a really interesting exercise. Some people will say it won't be fun because you're not shaping a contender this year and you're not really, uh, you know, there will be probably some people who might be able to figure out how to make like a team that can contend if everybody hits their, 70th percentile outcomes that's within reach. So I think it's kind of a litmus test for how optimistic individual fans are as they go out, figuring just exactly what kind of roster they want to present.
1: That's a good point about the litmus test and how White Sox fans feel. If it's even worthwhile, obviously the very first comment during the live stream, as we are streaming this live on youtube.com slash machine is It's not worth it as long as Jerry Reinsdorf's in charge. (laughs) Shut up. Shut up. (laughs) And uh, Clutch Hat also put this comment in the YouTube stream. I don't see how you can make a contender realistically. And I I guess with this particular World Series matchup, this is where, I don't know if it's like fool's hope, Jim, but Mm -hmm. just two years ago, the Texas Rangers and the Arizona Diverbacks both lost 100-plus games, both franchises went in different ways, a bit rebuilding as far as their team into a contender. The Texas Rangers spent a lot of money. The Arizona Diamondbacks completely changed on the type of players that they drafted and that they signed, even on the international front as well. And the 84-win Diamondbacks and the 90-win Texas Rangers, the fifth seed in the American League and the sixth seed in the National League, are to face each other in the world series because variance is awesome and chaos can be fun and that's what we've got this year in the mlb postseason anything can happen in the postseason you just got to get there but it's a matter of how you get there and i think the model has been proven lately yes you do need to have a strong pipeline and you need to have a strong backbone but you also have to spend premium dollars on premium players in free agency that is still important and I think with this particular offseason plan project, if you are trying to build a contender, this is where I'm gonna be curious on um, like what kind of premium free agents that White Sox fans would want the team to go after. On the position player front, if you've listened to our review podcasts, there's not a whole lot going on in free agency this year. There's plenty of options though on the starting pitching front. So if you want mm-hmm. to enhance the position player front, trades are gonna to have to come up if you are looking for that premium talent and I can't wait to see what people have as far as trades with this coming off season plan project with that said, this episode is to help you those that are participating in the off season plan project or those that just enjoy reading everyone's plans for this upcoming off season to walk you through step-by-step through the process. But before we get started, I thought it'd be kind of fun to take a look at my off season plan last year. For this upcoming season, Jim, I wasn't Mm -hmm. too busy. Uh, I did have a trade sending Liam Hendricks to the Los Angeles Dodgers. That was before we found out that he had cancer. One of the players that I had mocked returning to the White Sox was actually Nick Destrini. And I totally forgot that I wrote about that uh, until I read it this morning while I was preparing for this show. And uh, yay me, thumbs up. That actually kind of not directly happened. And now Nick Nestrini's is on the Chicago White Sox, but there's a big decision to be made about Liam Hendricks. But I really zeroed in on like three players in my off-season plan project to try to make an 81-win team into like an 85-86-win team, and the White Sox this year didn't come close to that. And uh, there was a good move by me. There was a meh. And there was a really bad move. So my plan last year, the good training for Anthony Santander, uh, Santander, that would have been a great move for the White Sox because he's the type of bat that they needed in the lineup. He was a three-war player, according to BaseballReference.com. He had 28 homers for the Orioles this year, almost drove in 100 RBIs. He finished at 95. His OPS plus was 121, which would have easily been second on the White Sox. Uh, and he had 257 with a 325 on base percentage. That's not a high on base percentage, but he slugged 472. The type of hitter the White Sox needed to bat behind Luis Robert Jr. So I'm going to count that as that was a good idea, Josh. My meh idea was signing Sean Manaya, the left handed pitcher. And funny, he went to the San Francisco Giants at a two year deal gym uh, when Brian Bannister's there. And they kind of used him in this hybrid role this year. He appeared in 37 games. He made 10 starts. He pitched 117 innings. And he was hovering around league average. His ERA plus finished at 95. So he ended up being 5% below league average. He had a 4.44 ERA. His war was 0.3 for the season. If he was on the White Sox instead of the San Francisco Giants right now, Sean I would have a very good chance of being the starting pitcher because the White Sox need help there. I'm going to call that a meh type of idea. The bad was signing Colton Juan to take care of second base. I don't know what happened to Colton Juan, Jim. Uh, mm-hmm. He might be toast now at this stage of his career. 47 OPS plus. He just cannot hit in the majors anymore. And I don't think he's a viable major leaguer. So it's always fun to kind of take a look back to see and what I had thought of last year for the offseason plaid project. And you know what? I'll take one out of three. That's a three, 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 batting average that works at baseball. I'll, I'll take it. At least I had one good idea. It feels like
2: a one and a half, like Minaya would have helped. In one regard or another, like Mike Clevenger was better, although you don't have the headaches up front that Clevenger presented, but the White Sox could have used that given all the pitching problems they had elsewhere. That they would have been happy to have like Mania in Jesse Schultz's place. So I'd give that like a half point.
1: Okay, you know what? I'll take it. I'll take one and a half out of three. <laughs> the cold one was just so bad. He was even worse than what the White Sox had. That would have just compounded problems. So. Again, hey, if you can't make fun of yourself, you really can't make fun of anyone else. So it's always nice to go back to see and how big of an idiot I was.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, you had a band. lot of uh, I'm looking right now at uh, uh, one of the members of the Sox Machine community, Deja Vu. He uh, has a uh, shop talk post that I have ready to go for the morning, just reviewing the most popular candidates that people wanted signed uh, or traded for or players traded away and Colton Wong was number three you know behind Jose Quintana and Michael Conforto and like Quintana was okay when he's healthy just had that rib problem that you know I'm not sure if that's a you might have had that uh, regardless Conforto was mediocre Rodan was right behind Wong and terrible so like Brandon Nemo was my guy and he was good like he was what I thought the White Sox could use but Mania number six Benintendi number seven so like yeah it was a case of just uh kind of a lottery, a potluck of, uh, players, the White Sox can afford. And when they shop in that tier, you know, it's hard to get hits, uh, in that regard. So yeah. Uh, Santander was number three among the uh, players, most popular in trades behind uh, a and Gavin Lux who did not play. Pepiat was good. Uh, Santander, uh, Santander was, uh, you know, number three, Brandon Lau, number five, he was good. Mm. So like Luzardo, number six. So the trade targets were pretty good. Uh, up and down, like Michael Bush didn't get much playing time, like he's the only one who is below average of the guys who are healthy enough to play. Um, so like the trade targets, generally speaking, the Sox Machine community did pretty well.
1: Yeah, the, the free agent it's tough because you want to try to be realistic when working this offseason plan project. Because if you go in there, like the White Sox are to sign Shohei Otani, like I'd love to see what everybody thinks, what kind of contract that they would offer to Otani that they think Otani would actually accept because the whole Tommy John surgery is making things really hazy as far as his market. And I could see teams being hesitant to offering so many years up front. I could see a player mutual or club option within the first two years of that contract. If he can't pitch, teams are not going to want to pay him $50 million a year to be a DH. They're just not. No matter how good he is, teams are not going to want to pay that. Uh, so, again, but back to the realistic part. I mean, Jerry Reinstorf made it pretty clear. He's not going to be interested in signing Shoei Otani, which kind of sucks as a White Sox fan. So I could see where we just, like, miss as a community on free agents because we're we're trying to shop and trying to shop where the White Sox are going to shop and try to think, like, the how the White ones. Sox front office would be. in the uh, Target $1 bin, it's the first aisle that you run into at Target. And it's not a, it's not a lot of fun and it is, there's a lot more misses and hits. And that's why typically when it comes to the best players that hit free agency, that's why you got to spend a lot of money because they earn it and they deserve it. And when you have cash, like the Texas Rangers owner throws down, you can quickly turn the fate around of your organization. Uh, And if you don't want to spend that money, you better develop like the Arizona Diamondbacks and the Tampa Bay Rays and et cetera, et cetera, of the mid to small market teams that are consistently good. Either way, the White Sox have a lot of work to do. So that was pokey fun at my plan last year. And uh, if you guys want to go back to see your plans, you could do that. We have it archived on SoxMachine.com. Now it's time to go to the exercise and we will start with the tender or non-tender now within 10 days of the world series ending is the deadline for chris gets to make some moves and we're going to break those down right away so the first decision jim is liam hendricks the club option is 15 million dollars or it's this buyout that we've been talking about ever since he signed the contract with the white Sox—one and one and a half million dollars over the next 10 years and again Hendricks. Tommy John surgery he is out until at least August he thinks he could come back in August but again you have to be careful with everything that he has gone through as far as his body beating cancer came back from that pitched in the major leagues this year gets hurt now needs Tommy John he's had the surgery now he's going through rehab his body has gone through a lot. So Jim, what are your thoughts about this particular decision that everyone in Sox machine is going to have to make regarding Hendricks club option?
2: It was, uh, one of the things I didn't like about the Liam Hendricks contract was like how proud Jerry Reinsdorf was of that option. He's like, we're not going to give him a guaranteed fourth year. That's crazy. This is how I'm going to do it. And this is how we got it done. Uh, compliment me, Bob Nightingale and our smart work. And then, Sure enough, it presents this really hazy situation, emotionally loaded, too, with just the fact that it comes after a cancer diagnosis and everything he's been through and the kind of uh, face he put on his um, cancer battle and all the good work that he did with, the uh, you know, going around, traveling with the team, meeting cancer patients in other cities, being very proactive with just, um, you know, both uh, all the people who rallied for him and then paying back once he uh, was in the clear, you uh, when he could pitch and then after he was done for the season. So like, it's a terrible, um, you know, it, it feels really awful to say like, yeah, we're going to buy you out. So, cause I mean, that's a smart decision. That's why you do it. Is like 1.5 million, even though it does add up to 15 million in real dollars, it's less than 15 million because that 5, that 1.5 million gets a little bit cheaper every year as inflation kicks in. So like the real value of it is something less. I can't, Yeah, I'm not economist. I can't do the math reflexively in terms of the uh, uh, how much that value is diminished, but probably comes into something like 12 million or 13 million by the end of that. Uh, So like that's the smart move in terms of pure economics and the reason why you do that and the reason why a team tries to protect itself, even if it's annoying every year for 10 years, like factoring that $1.5 million into your plan, the way they did that with Paul Canerco and the way they're doing that with Jose Abreu right now, just like carry over money that you forgets there. And you'd rather tie it up. But, you know, I think the, you know, that's probably the wise move as they go through it. But, you know, part of it is, you know, if the White Sox are really paring down the payroll and they're not going to contend and Chris gets said, like, I've done my deep dive and I don't see a way to really turn this around and we're going to be spending, you know uh 140 million dollars regardless you know a 40 million dollar drop in our payroll like it kind of makes sense like give the man his money like just uh you know kind of it the the savings are minimal for you know just getting it out of the way awarding him you know for just being like a you know a positive force uh for non-baseball things while he couldn't be a force for baseball things uh but that's kind of how i look at it that's you know Jerry Reinsdorf probably didn't get rich by giving away money that he didn't have to, uh, as we've seen. Uh, So like, I'm, I'm really curious, like, I don't know how how this is going to happen or whether they arrange something that's kind of in between. That's a little bit more of a nod towards it. Yeah. We understand the human toll that you took for trying to come back. So like, maybe it's some kind of negotiated buyout. That's something in between uh, just making them go away, but also just paying them a little bit more upfront or something. I don't know.
1: Yeah, I don't know if you can do like a settlement. I would have to do some research. And maybe those that are watching or listening to this episode, maybe do know of an example. But that does raise a good point by Jim. Is it possible to settle a particular buyout?
2: They were going to do that with Steven Strasburg. (laughs) Uh, The Nationals were and then. Oh, yeah, that's uh... right. Uh, then that got hung up the, the plan to have him retire uh, because they're still negotiating it. So I know they've, they've tried to in different guards, but
1: yeah, other teams have, I, I just, yeah, it'll, it requires some, it requires some research, but from a Hendricks point of view, listen, I negotiated this, you sign on the dotted line. I sign on the dotted line. Here's the deal. And, and Hendricks has mentioned it towards the end of the season in his interviews, when the beat reporters were asking Hendricks, are you coming back? And I thought he was very forthright, and he fully understands the situation. He thinks it's doubtful that the White mm-hmm. Sox will pick up his $15 million option. So for Liam Hendricks, he's expecting the White Sox to not pick it up, and then he'll be paid $1.5 million over the next 10 years, and then he'll become a free agent. And then it'll be really interesting to see what teams would be willing to throw out a pillow contract and have him rehab. One team in particular that I think could do that, maybe willing to do that, is like the Los Angeles Dodgers. Obviously, they share the same spring training facility with the Chicago White Sox. Maybe pay him like $5 million for this year and pay him $15 million next year. So it looks like a two-year, $20 million contract for Hendricks. Uh, And it just helps him with rehab and he gets a little money if he does get back in time. And if he is back to full strength, boom, the Dodgers have their late inning reliever that they've been looking for since Kenley Jensen has left him. Uh, So that's one idea that I have for Hendricks.
2: I think the Yankees did that, too, with Tommy Canely or maybe the Dodgers did with Canely. But like, yeah, I remember him having a similar arrangement.
1: Yes. So again, that's that's your first decision. You got to decide what you're going to be doing with Liam Hendricks. If you pick up the option, again, that adds $15 million to your budget. If you don't pick up the option, it only adds $1.5 million to your budget. Next is Tim Anderson. We have spent a lot of time in previous episodes talking about this particular option for Tim Anderson. It's either $14 million for the 2024 season, or it's a $1 million buyout. Again, Tim Anderson is coming off a career-worst season, and what doesn't make matters any better is that the best available shortstop in this free agency class is Elvis Andrews, based on performance in the 2023 season. This is the worst free agent market in the history of Major League Baseball free agency, period. So really complicated situation here, Jim. But this is, I think, what will have a lot of participants on Sox Machine just like wanting to pull on their hair and just rip hair off their head is what do I do here? Because if I don't pick it up, cool, I got $13 million to play with, but now I don't have a shortstop. And if you don't like the free agent shortstop options, like, Colson Montgomery is hitting well at the Arizona Fall League. I think he's finding his rhythm, but he's not ready yet to start on opening day. So you need some type of stopgap solution. And he's or, playing a bad shortstop. Yeah, you know, he's also playing bad shortstop. And yeah, those fears continue to mount even in the Arizona Fall League. So he may not even be a shortstop. I'm not trying to scare people during this podcast episode, but mm-hmm. again, there's more and more people that are starting to jump on that bandwagon. Uh, that. Montgomery's having difficulties defensively at shortstop. I feel like this is where we're going to get a lot of trade ideas for people to try to find a shortstop, at least for the 2024 season. How are you expecting this to be played out in the offseason plan projects, Jim? I I know you and I both agree that it might be best to just buy out Tim Anderson and for all parties involved to move forward and go their separate ways, but how do you think it could play out in the offseason plan project?
2: I think that'll be the like perhaps shortstop will be the most diverse pool of solutions, veterans, uh, rookies, internal guys like Jose Rodriguez or something like that, or just uh, you know stopgap veterans trade, you know, wild trade ideas, uh, Romy Gonzalez randomly <laughs> thrown in there. Who knows? But like, I can see a whole bunch of uh, solutions for this position. Like I think the if there's a fear of buying them out, I think it might be similar to like the Kyle Schwarber uh, arbitration decision the Cubs went to, where they non-tendered him, and like the Nationals are like, sure, I'll give him a little bit more money than he was owed in arbitration. His projections were for MLB trade rumors because so I think like he was projected for like nine million for the Cubs. They non-tendered him. The Nationals gave him ten or something like that. So he came out no worse for the wear, and then he mm-hmm. goes has a great year, gets traded. uh, to the Red Sox, then sets that up for a big four-year deal, and like the Cubs look, you know, silly for non-tendering them. So, even though it is a an option versus a you know tender/non-tender decision, like it is a uh, a case where like you can understand like the similar like that was foolish. Like we should have given away, given how uh, barren the shortstop market was. But there are just a lot of underlying factors here. Um, just the lower body issues, the Uh you know, like Schwarber, he was always strong, was always going to be strong. Anderson, like his strength is like bat to ball, like babip, really, like getting a a high batting average. And that's harder to maintain if you don't really have the ability to occasionally turn on a ball and do some damage. Like Josh Harrison was that king of medium contact. And you know, when the White Sox signed him, you could see like ebbs and flows, like Good year, bad year, good year, bad year it comes the White Sox. He has a bad year, uh, because it's just hard to get by trying to hit 290 when you're only going to hit like single-digit homers. So I think that's what's complicating this about like trying to mine for upside and trying to figure out how Anderson produces to a level. Uh to earn that 14 million, even before you factor in the durability, and when he, will he get hurt again, or will he be injured in a way that hampers him from tapping into like his best physical abilities to get to the level that he used to be at before? So it strikes me as like an easy buyout, but a difficult solution. And I think that's what makes it complicated. Like, if the free agent market were loaded, or the White Sox had like a line of players to try, like they did at second base. I think, like, Lenin Sosa can't quite handle shortstop. Jose Rodriguez shouldn't be counted upon to be an everyday shortstop. Uh, And, like, when second base is just as much as a mystery, that's what makes it hard. Like, second base was easy because Tim Anderson was theoretically a fixture there. And then, like, when Anderson goes under, the whole middle infield sinks. So with him being gone, now you have two positions to solve and nothing looks stable and they could just be a mess behind the pitcher. So that's, I think, what is the only real pull to just stick with what you know. And it's a, it's, it's significant. Like it's not like something can just easily shrug away unless you have a really good idea and really have a trade idea that you really want to throw down that will impress some people.
1: The Liam Hendricks decision is a grueling decision to make for a new general manager because there's a lot of emotions involved, but somebody has to make a business decision whether to pick it up or decline it. And it's deferred payments over 10 years here for the tim anderson decision you have brand new baseball ops people in the front office and you're going to get different opinions about tim anderson i think in that room and it's going to be hard to come up with the consensus and you got to figure this out like right now right because mm-hmm. you're starting the world series you need to continue having these conversations i'm assuming chris Getz has been Having conversations, at least with Tim Anderson's agent, going back and forth because if Anderson is willing to play second base, how much is he willing to do that? Like if I decline it and I offer him a one-year contract to be our starting second baseman, would he accept that? Would he want to test free agency? And I just don't know on how the other 29 teams view Tim Anderson right now, Jim in Major League Baseball. A couple of years ago, if you were a free agent, man, he would have cashed in like Xander Bogarts and Javier Baez and Trey Turner. Like all these mega contracts these shortstops signed when they became free agents, but he didn't. And that's unfortunately bad luck. And to make things worse, he was the worst qualified hitter in Major League Baseball. Period. The worst. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what other te- I don't know how other teams view him and that's why his free agency market would be fascinating. So if you can't make a decision within 10 days or you're still uncertain, maybe it is easy to just buy out and then wait back and see and how the market views Tim Anderson. If he's still on the market, if you're a couple of weeks weeks away from spring training, you could always re-engage in those conversations. I know Chris Getz wasn't part of those conversations, but that's exactly on how the White Sox handled Carlos Rodon. And when he was still available, they floated 3 million. He accepted it. And boy, they really cashed in on that lottery ticket as Rodon was phenomenal in 2021. So two really tough decisions. If you pick up the option for Tim Anderson, that's $14 million added to your budget. If you decline it, it's a $1 million buyout. So if you pick up both Hendricks and Anderson, you already added $29 million to your offseason budget. Now, the other tender, non-tender, Mike Clevenger, Clevenger could decide this for you in the offseason plan project because it is a mutual option. Both sides have to agree to this. It is a $12 million contract option for the 2024 season. Or if Clevenger decides to opt out, the White Sox owe him $4 million and Clevenger becomes a free agent. I think that is the route that he is going to go, Jim, even though this is a loaded free agency class. Even if Clevenger signs another $12 million deal, taking the $4 million from the White Sox and the $12 million from another team, boom, simple math. You just made $16 million, and it is all about a professional sports when you're in your 30s as a pitcher, to either chase Reigns or make as much cash as possible. So I think that's the business decision that Mike Clevenger is going to make. We've had this conversation during our starting pitching review from white Sox perspective. Does it make sense to opt into their side of the mutual option? But again, even if you do Clevenger has to opt in on his side. And I just don't think it's likely Jim. Does my flow of logic here makes sense are are you do you agree with me from a clevenger perspective about this mutual option yeah it's similar to the aj pollock
2: uh situation last year to where like he only had to actually he signed for less uh to sign with the mariners but he just found a better situation with a team that he thought he fit better with and like if he hit some incentives he would have out earned it so like playing more for a contender and playing uh, more for a team that he likes in an area that he likes, perhaps. And, you know, the ability to maybe earn more was ultimately enough to have him uh, turn down uh, the contract that he could have really settled. He could have really settled the White Sox with the problem in left field. If he accepted that uh, last year of his deal, he exercised it. So Similar thing with Clevenger where like, even if he can't find one year and 8 million, when you look at like the pitchers who signed for 8 million last year, like he should be able to find something along those lines. Like even if he has to sign for like 7 million and he could probably f- figure out like a incentive deal to where like, if he hits a hundred innings or if he hits uh, 12 starts, then all of a sudden he's earning like an extra million. And then like, that's a case where, you yeah, then every 20 innings or every whatever you're earning more and more. And so like, one way or another, he should be able to beat eight million. Find a situation that's not uh, a sinking ship, and like the White Sox will want to trade him if they do uh, exercise an option, most likely whether it's during the winter or whether it's during the season. So like he may as well pick where he wants to go if he's going to earn that money. Uh, the question I have with the White Sox is like, does it make sense that since they have to pay him four million dollars anyway? Uh, if they sense like Clevenger is going to accept, like, do they just decline it and say, like, we're going to cut the ties ourselves." Like, you know, um, you're not breaking up with me. I'm breaking up with you. It's kind of like a signal of like uh, mistakes were made in terms of the vetting process last time or how they uh, went about uh, their due diligence. So, like, that's what I'm kind of curious about the timing more than
1: the outcome. When I saw the Milwaukee Bucks make that big trade with Portland for Damian Lillard. I immediately went on Game Time to see when they were playing the Chicago Bulls. Saw so it was on November 30th, and Game Time had great seats in the 300 level right at center court in the United Center. Great tickets at a great price. I couldn't pass up the opportunity. Buying tickets shouldn't be stressful. Use Game Time to purchase your tickets. Game Time is the fast and easy way to buy tickets for sports, music, comedy, and theater near you they've got killer deals on last-minute tickets and their best price guarantee helps eliminate stressing over tickets if you find tickets in the same section and even row for less money game time will credit you 110% of the difference that's why game time is the fastest growing ticketing app in the country download the game time app create your account and get 20 dollars off your first purchase using our promo code socks machine Terms and conditions apply. Again, create an account and use our promo code SOXMACHINE for $20 off your first ticket purchase. Game time. Last-minute tickets. Lowest prices. Guaranteed.
0: We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors. According to Indeed data
1: I don't know what the new front office, if they're going to be willing to admit like mistakes are made. But again, if you, if the white Sox don't opt in on their side, they got some work to do on the started pitching front. And I do think you're right. Like even if Clevenger does sign like a $10 million deal from a business decision perspective, it just, unless Mike Clevenger absolutely loves working with the cats that he absolutely loves Chicago and he absolutely loves pitching for the Chicago white Sox, I just don't see him opting in. On his side of the twelve million, so yeah, for those participating. One, out- oh, go ahead. Well, it's
2: like the one thing yeah, catches like, did the events of the last winter hurt his market going into this? Like, yeah, you know, obviously the investigation. He, he was uh, the league did not find a reason to issue discipline. Uh, so, like, you know, it's theoretically like the White Sox got the worst of it in terms of like signing the the public blowback all the things that they couldn't talk about and just had to and you know wait and experience and like you know another team signing Clevenger should say like you know well yeah it's you know that happened last year uh with the White Sox and previously with the Padres and you know the league investigated and we feel like their investigation you know and and the way he Conducted himself afterwards, made us feel confident in this one year contract. So, like, I could see it being that way, but also, like, sometimes, like, guys have a hard time finding jobs after something like that. Uh, so, like, I could see it where the market takes a while for him to play out, and just like maybe it's a case of just another year putting it behind him might be a smarter play. Like, that's the one. Uh, catch I can see as to why Clevenger might accept it if his agent's saying, Well, you know, sometimes uh, you, you need a little bit more time to uh, hmm. put something in the rearview mirror, so fans of other teams and other you know, general managers and such just kind of forget about it, or at least have something more to point to in terms of uh, why they think that uh, this guy is a sound investment.
1: From that perspective, that would be. Clevenger emitting some fault, and he has not done that during this yeah. entire process. Yeah. So, I, I, y- your logic makes sense, Jim. I just, I don't see that happening or unfolding this particular situation. So, I guess I'll make the executive decision for those that are listening. For you guys, boom, four million dollars to Mike Clevenger. So you'd save eight million from the twelve million, but you got some work to do on the starting pitching front. So. Those are the three players that have upcoming club options or mutual options that you have to make decisions for. The next step is the arbitration eligible players. For those that are watching on YouTube, I have made this slide and I have strategically placed certain players together, grouped them up. So I'll start with most likely to be picked up to least likely to be picked up. Uh, Dylan Cease and... uh, we're using these totals from MLB trade rumors. His estimated numbers: eight point eight million dollars. Michael Kopech estimated three point six million. Andrew Vaughn is estimated at three point seven. Tuki Tucson is at one point seven million. And Garrett Crochet, his first year of arbitration at nine hundred thousand. These are the three that I don't think it's likely they're going to be tendered contracts. Matt Foster at seven hundred forty thousand, but I could see the White Sox not tendering and then inviting Foster to a spring training invite as he recovers from significant injury. Clint Frazier at nine hundred thousand, and uh, even though it does break my heart for the White Sox to break up, what would this be the fourth time the White Sox broke up with Trace Thompson?
2: <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh,
1: Thompson has a estimated arbitration number at one point seven million, so. <laughs> we got this comment from our friend Beefloaf on YouTube. Pick up Trace Thompson, you coward! No, I will be a coward. I will not be picking up Trace Thompson's option. So, out of eight players, I think five. The White Sox will pick up five contracts here, Jim.
2: Yeah, I think maybe Tuki Tucson is the one who. Yeah, you know, and these are MLB trade rumors projections. So some guys end up on the high side, some guys end up on the low side, and sometimes the the figures individually can fluctuates sometimes outside of a standard deviation, but ultimately like the, the net sum usually is in the neighborhood. So even if it's, it, I think it's more of an exercise that's valuable for like figuring out how much of your payroll is dedicated towards arbitration eligible players versus like how much is one person going to make. But in this case, like Tucson, like 1.7 feels like fair for what he provided both starting and relieving. Like I could see if his number came in at like point three maybe the white Sox think that's too much whereas if it comes in at like 1.1 uh maybe it's something different to where like white Sox, is like an obvious no-brainer and he's going to be making less than anybody thought the one i think would be exceptionally bold is like michael kopek if they just said no thanks but i think uh, probably one year too early to be like uh and given how little other pitching they have like maybe in another year in another situation they might say like now we're good we could use that 3.6 million dollars uh, elsewhere, especially since like his trade value is next to nothing right now. But uh, that's the one that jumped out to me in terms of other years. I could make a stronger case for that. Uh, Trace Thompson, like it seemed like his value to the white Sox was showing how much they hated Oscar Colas. Like, <laughs> cause like how poorly he played, like Colas could have done what Thompson did the plate striking out 40 times in 92 plate appearances so like he offered nothing like he was decent in the field but you know was was basically uh, nothing at the plates but like they just kept running him out there because like it was just more or less making a point saying like no we don't want you here this is how little we want you here is that we're bringing in trace thompson and paying him to strike out every other at bat and we consider that a better experience so uh if they brought him back that would really be like just sending a message really burying him in the death chart and say like yep uh, this is what you've done to yourself. And this is how firmly entrenched in the doghouse you are.
1: Yikes. I, I hope you're, I hope you're Raj. <laughs> it does. happen. Uh, uh, yeah.
2: It's just like they, they would find some other guy. I imagine some, you know, that'd be like an, a non roster invitee who would come in. Like basically like Clint Frazier, I think would be that sort of guy, like the equivalent of that who will be non tendered by somebody else.
1: All right. So those are your pending free agents, pick up the club options, mutual options, the arbitration eligible players. So after you have that sorted out and you have the carryovers, that you can look up on COTS contracts. Jim will have that link for you guys on socksmachine.com in the offseason plan project template. So you can see what the numbers are. Spot Track is also a great resource as well to look up on what the p- the payroll salary number. That's the key, not the luxury tax salary. We're talking about payroll salary here. What the payroll salary <laughs> number is going to be uh, to add. You never have to, to worry your about the
2: luxury tax.
1: Never have to worry about the luxury tax. No. So with that being said. It is now time to unveil your budget for this offseason plan project. And it's going to be $185 million. I view this number to be very fair. We talked about it off screen in conversations back and forth, Jim. And I think your logic makes sense. Listen, if Jerry Reinsdorf really does want to contend in the American League Central, despite the drop in attendance and despite the television ratings taking a hit, if this is really like the last hurrah as an 87-year-old baseball owner, he really can't cut budget at this time.
2: Right. Uh, previously, you know, like I said, I set the budget at $190 million. Um And like you said, with Jerry Reinsdorf, like – if you want to push, you have to end up similar, end up spending in a similar neighborhood, and so like 185 million, I think, gives people the option. Uh, even if you think that number is, uh, you know, grossly inflated or optimistic based on, yeah, the, the plunging attendance and in, in TV ratings, but like, hey, you know, like if he didn't want even want to hire a the reanimated corpse of Branch Ricky, he went with Chris Getz because he wanted to turn around quickly. So like, this is more or less me putting his money where his mouth was. Uh, The question for the GMs who do this, uh, do this exercise is, do you think it's worth spending all that money? It might not be like, it might be spending it in vain. You might not get solutions. You might block guys. You might have to, you know, you might end up in an Andrew Benintendi situation where you overpay for somebody who's not going to be able to contribute his first couple years of a free agent contract for a team that's going to get anywhere, so like that's I think the yeah you know, there's a little bit of discretion on the part of uh, somebody doing the off season plan project, and I think for me like what I'm curious to see is whether people you know really try to go all out to pursue like 85 wins like the Diamondbacks model of trying to sneak into that uh, third wild card spot or the AL Central whichever. <laughs> <laughs> whichever one's closer because sometimes you never quite know and uh, it comes right. to uh win thresholds uh i could see you know gunning for that and trying to come up with some creative solutions but i could see other people saying like yeah I'm, i've tried to get there and i just don't see a comprehensive team doing that i'm gonna focus on like setting my team up better for 2025 trying to figure out how to at least get one facet of this team on solid ground, because we've talked about it. Uh, What does this team do well? It's hard to say if they do anything well. At one point it was starting pitching, like they had the best five-man rotation in the AL Central. That kind of blew up on them in a hurry last year, and then they were left with nothing. So, like, if you're a GM and you're just looking for what constitutes progress, like that's a pretty easy way to look at it, is trying to get your team – To do something better, to do something that's an actual strength, to do something that might last the whole season, and even if that results in a team that wins 70 games or 75, like that might be enough to where you feel better about 2025 when Colson Montgomery and Brian Ramos and other prospects are a bigger part of the picture. So that's why I think there's a little bit of a fork in the road here, and I think that's why Chris Goetz has been, he went from hitting the ground running and knowing the team inside and out and knowing exactly what he has to do to being somebody who's like, Oh, you know, I got to do a deeper dive and see what's really uh, here. Now that Jerry Reinsdorf is not in the same room that I am and I don't have to, I can, I can contradict him a little bit and say uh, that that quick turnaround might not happen. So that's what I think is, uh, is the more, you know, even if it's not as fun of a project and figuring out like how to get the best possible team on the field, I think there are probably more, Nuanced, complicated, maybe enlightening, philosophical conversations to be had in terms of what do you te- what do you want this team to be, and what's the first step in getting there?
1: And there's a lot of chatter right now as we are streaming live on YouTube.com/slash socks Machine about the budget. Already, some pushback. People think it's too high. There's no way the White Sox would maintain that. So I have generated a rough draft, and I've also created a Google sheet as well very handy template that you could add players and what you think the salary, what you would sign that player to be. And it adds up the budget for you and deciding to not pick up the options and Liam Hendricks, Tim Anderson, and then Mike Clevenger opting out, taking the carryovers from last year, as far as like with the bullpen and having a bench of like Corey Lee, Zach Ramillard and Gavin sheets, needing to find a starting catcher, starting second baseman and shortstop a starting right fielder three starting pitchers and whoever to be the eighth guy in the bullpen. Maybe you don't spend any money. You just throw a random person in there. But with all that laundry list, again, catcher, second base, shortstop, right field, three starting pitchers. I'm already at $109.6 million. So if you restrict yourself to 150 million, for example, you got forty million dollars to find three starting pitchers. You can't do it in free agency. You can't do it. You you'll be you, Nick Nastriani will be in your starting rotation. And I already see in the comments section as well when you're starting to do the math, like how in the world do you trade for Salvador Perez if you don't have a hundred eighty-five billion dollar budget? You you don't. You you can't trade for Salvador Perez because you just. I said it too high. Money. Never
2: mind. Hundred and thirty. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Cut it. Slash it. Uh, Yeah. So even with this, like if you follow along and you have a similar rough draft like I do, at least with the plan, you got $75 million to work with to find three starting pitchers, a catcher, a new middle infielder and right field. Like I'm not going to lie with you guys. Like I'm already starting on my rough draft. This is an arduous task. In trying to build a team that could bounce back and win in 2024 or at least pretend that they could challenge the Minnesota Twins for the American League Central. It is not easy. It requires a lot of bounce back. Uh, and it requires a lot of free agent signings and taking risks on guys on one to two year contracts. So you don't saddle yourself with bad contracts going to 2025 because a lot of money does fall off the books for the White Sox, or at least the possibility of a lot of money could fall off the books for the Chicago White Sox. So you could have more money to spend or that is when Jerry Reinsdorf does say, forget it. We ran our course. Budget of 2025 is $125 million. And then I'm not even sure on how you can build a 26-man team. You may have to call up the Savannah Bananas to help you out, fill out the rest of the roster. But, I mean, it, it's tough. I mean, this is the, the laundry list we talked about in the review podcast episodes. Again, a new middle infield, someone to start a catcher, someone to figure out right field, and the most pressing and the most money-consuming is the starting pitching. Whether you find free agents or you'd be like, Josh, and want to trade for starting pitchers, man, look at the, what has been traded at the deadline and in the off season, it requires a great deal of prospect cost, So the White Sox don't have a lot of prospects that they want to deal. They just acquired a bunch at the deadline. So I'm assuming they want to keep some of these guys around to see if they could help themselves out for this upcoming season. It's a delicate balance, and again, I, I find this particular offseason plan project to be one of the most difficult tasks that we've had with this project since we brought it over in 2018 from Southside Sox Gym. This is this is where it's difficult. Like 75 million, hey, that's a lot of money. I could be really creative. Maybe go after a big free agent, or maybe you do like the idea of acquiring Salvador Perez. But again, it's new million fielder, catcher, right fielder. So that's what four position players you got to find and three starting pitchers, seven new players for $75 million. That's going to be tough.
2: Well, uh, clutch hat trick. Thanks for the super tip here. Saying how about the rule five draft? I could see them like <laughs> going round after round <laughs> 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 round after round picking guys, just, yeah, uh, filling out the roster, but yeah, it's,
1: it's, it's not a bad idea when it comes to finding that eighth guy in the bullpen though. If Mm -hmm. there is somebody that throws 97 in AAA, sure. Uh, We heard some good things about Jordan Leisure. Uh, The White Sox acquired him uh, from the uh, mid-year deals. Maybe they give him a shot. I I don't want the White Sox to spend any money on the bullpen, but I I don't hate the idea. Like, the Rule 5 draft is great in finding relievers.
2: Yeah. uh, I think, you know, thinking about Michael Kopech and thinking about, like, how little trade value he has, like, part of the White Sox job, I think, in terms of filling out the rotation, might be looking for other teams, Michael Kopex, and saying, like, which is a guy who, like, has shown the ability to start, looks like he's on the way out, team might not want him around, Pe- you know, team might be happy to free up the salary or get somebody, like, low-level, interesting and in return to them, and maybe the White Sox can shape him something. I think that's part of the reason why, Brian Bannister is aboard because the giants were really good at stitching together rotations that had some name brand talent, but also got by with like middle of the road, free agents and guys who get one year and two year deals. So I think that's part of the reason why he's around is to have a rotation that's better or, or greater than the sum of its parts. So I'm looking forward to seeing what he does in that regard. And like who might come aboard, uh, like, there's it's nice to have somebody in this organization to where you can say, like, Yeah, I'll give him the benefit of the doubt, I'll see whether this pans out. Like, yeah, the numbers yeah. aren't great and he's not throwing strikes, but like, he's done it elsewhere, so let's see what he does here. You know, it's another case where like maybe the White Sox are getting him too late, and uh, uh you know, like the Giants were you know not hell bent on keeping him for a reason, but you know, like his track record is probably the best individual track record of any White Sox front office member or member of the coaching staff. So I'm going to lean on that and say like, yeah, uh, here's a little pleasant bit of relief to where like, you don't have to second guess so hard. You can say like, yeah, you can, you know, trust, but verify or, uh, you know, keep an open mind. But I'm looking forward to being like, yeah, let's see what he does. Let's build up a data set for whether Brian Bannister's ideas for the White Sox are any good, whether Ethan Katz can implement them and see them through. And at least it gives you a pleasant bit of, I don't know, <laughs> which I think is better than like, uh, in most well, cases, we dealt like with know, the like, last
1: 10 years. Yeah.
2: You know, you know, when, when, you know, uh, Rick Hahn signs an Adam Eaton, you're just like, nah, this is going to work. <laughs> was,
1: our first guesses were pretty spot on. Uh, <laughs> yeah. In recent years when it came to the, off season that is what's going to be intriguing especially when we do other media appearances as well when people ask what do you think the white Sox are going to do i don't know we we don't know we're dealing with a brand new front office for the first time in a decade uh maybe even two decades depending on just how much control kenny williams had during the rick Hahn tenure uh especially in the rebuild part or at least leaving the rebuild and try to go into contending depending on who you speak with yeah it's it's all new ground and all new ideas so that is also the other exciting thing about this offseason plant project in past years oh definitely there were bad ideas uh but there's only one bad idea for this upcoming offseason plan project, and that is trying to orchestrate a trade with Kansas City for Salvador Perez. <laughs> Other than that, there are yeah. no bad ideas for the offseason plan project. <laughs> do not do not
2: enable Pedro Grifol. Make him earn it.
1: <laughs> right, uh, the team's got to win, and then you get Adam in the you know mid season, maybe, maybe. Uh, but when it comes to offseason ideas, I know we mentioned a lot of popular names in last year's offseason plan project. Are there any particular targets, Jim, that you are intrigued by, and you're curious to see what other people feel like on Sox Machine as a possible off-season target for the White Sox?
2: I think we talked about like the Brian Bannister connections in free agency with the uh, Giants, like Alex Wood is one, uh, Jacob Junis is another. Like, without trying to put my thumb on the scale too much in terms of like you know influencing ideas too much not like you know not to flatter myself but just i part of the reason i enjoy the off-season plan project so much is like people having ideas that i wouldn't even thought of like sometimes they're good sometimes they're not but sometimes the ideas that i don't think are good turn out to be like oh that wasn't so bad after all so that's why i uh you know i i always keep an open mind and just you know i i try to offer you know, only positive feedback versus like, oh, that's not going to happen. You mind, like, even if it's like a ridiculous plan, like there might be one good idea in there. And so like, that's what I kind of uh, mind for. But I think like that's when when thinking about Bannister and thinking about like, as you mentioned, Chamanaya, uh being used in a uh, kind of a, a hybrid role, same thing with Ross Stripling when they brought him aboard, like, with all of these starts available, like the White Sox do have a lot of opportunities to experiment with like part-time starters or openers or bulk pitchers. So like guys who might only throw a hundred innings, like the White Sox can use those guys Uh, because even if it's not your plan A or plan B for like an ideal starter who takes the ball every five or six days, you still need pitchers after that. Like that's how pitching starved they are up top is like, if you can throw a hundred innings in and ma- maintain health for five of six months, you can find a role on this team, which is why Tukey Tucson goes from being like somebody who is a scrap heap pickup and probably a non-tender when they acquired him to being like a pretty easy tender, as long as the projection is anywhere in the neighborhood. So that's, I think uh, there are a lot of ways to go about solving the pitching problem, uh, both with free agency trades and, Pitchers who might be spot starters, but you might be able to use them in uh creative ways. Uh I guess what I'm not looking forward to in terms of uh or what I dread on everybody's behalf is the middle infield because the White Sox have to solve both positions. Uh it's no longer just second base, the uh it's it spread, it's broken contain.
1: Yeah. Uh my rough draft is hilarious. Uh when it comes to the middle infield. Like I maybe have built the worst $180 million team in baseball history. Like just awful. Now we have some ideas coming trickling in on our YouTube comments. Uh, Trey put in his targets are Eduardo Rodriguez, Alex Wood and Mitch Garver. Two of these, I think are realistic. Eduardo Rodriguez, I don't think is leaving Detroit. And because he has that no trade clause or he's got to give permission to Detroit to activate a trade. And he wasn't able, he wasn't willing to do that for Los Angeles Dodgers for personal reasons. sounds like he does not want to move his family right now. Well, John Heyman said he's going
2: to John Heyman said he's going to opt out.
1: He's going to opt out.
2: Yeah. That's what John Heyman said. So whether that's like leverage to try to get like a, a year extension, which sometimes you see, uh, when it comes to players who like might be able to use that to like get Detroit to add on another year at the same salary, like that's possible. And so maybe he doesn't actually leave Detroit even if he is considering opting out, but that's one possibility.
1: Oh, that's fascinating. I did not know about that, but then that just makes it. Oh, okay. That makes the whole not taking the deal to the Dodgers and try to pitch in the playoffs. Okay. Whatever. Uh, okay. That's interesting. All right. So that's a big surprise. Okay, Trey. So yeah, not a bad idea. There you go. You got two starting pitchers and a catcher. Uh,
3: and at different I,
2: price points too. Like I can see like one, you know, one starter who's a significant investment. And then one who might be a one-year deal. Like I could see that kind of being the, the mix, the white Sox try to go with. Uh,
1: and, uh, yeah. Cause like Wood, I think he signed for his deals, 12 and a So maybe if you, Give him $12 million to come pitch for the White Sox, but promise him that he's a starter more times than out of the bullpen. Maybe that convinces him. Uh, here's one idea that I have, and I'm wondering how many people are going to do it, and I would do it just for the vibes, man. A reunion of Lucas Giolito and Jack Flaherty, Jim. I need you to be on my side on this. I need you to be on, on the boat with me. Let's make this happen. Harvard, Westlake, high. Let's bring it all back. Cats, Flaherty, Gilito. They will resurrect the starting pitching staff and lead it to glory.
2: It's like uh say by the bell the college years or like the the reunion show, <laughs> yeah. which I guess would make like Ethan cats, Mr. Belding. Yeah. Uh yeah. I mean, like Jack Flaherty be a case of just like, yeah, why not? Lucas Gilito, yeah. like if he wants to uh have like a pillow contract because he didn't quite set himself up well enough to get the multi-year deal he wants, like And he's comfortable working with cats and likes what Bannister has to say. Maybe like it seemed like as much as the White Sox were, uh, you know, just uh, a a real clown show. uh, I guess it'd be a circus, but circus sounds too dignified for what the White Sox were. Uh, (laughs) There are other things besides clowns at the surface, whereas the White Sox, I'm not quite sure, but uh, like, I could see him being like, yeah, I'll, you know, I'm comfortable there. Like I liked being there. And so like may as well, you know, if I'm going to bounce back anywhere, it may as well be there if I'm only planning on being there three or four months anyway. But uh, I could also see it being a remnant of what happened before. Like the, you know, the discussion with Tim Anderson is just like, do you want to turn the page on the rebuild and just the weird leadership structure that did or didn't exist or was tangled or, one sided, and that the pitchers had something and the position players didn't so like. You just want to turn the page on that entirely, not have anybody come in with like previously held gravitas and and you know, leadership that might not have been great. I'm not saying Giolito was that guy, just that is all you know, everybody's part of it to some degree. Like, that's what I don't quite know about these reunions, but I do like the idea of like Giolito on a short deal. Sure, um, you got to get those starts from somewhere, uh. You know, Jack Flaherty, like yeah, he's the kind of bounce back candidate they'd have to try to find. And like, if he's looking for a one year deal, and uh, a a guy like him might want to take a deal with a non contender, just because like by the end of the year, like he might be pitching for a contender. Like he figures, if I play my cards right, I'll be back on the Orioles. Like that's might be that might be like the path he sees as long as the white Sox don't uh, structure the contract to have like a hefty buyout that kills his trade value. Because like all of a sudden, uh, the white Sox paid for the, the cheap parts and the team that's trading for him has to pay for like the lump sum at the end.
1: Yeah. I think my strategy with my off season plan project is a lot of one, two year deals, really short term type of contracts, maybe multiple years with Mitch Garver. Cause I'm just not very high on Corey Lee or uh carlos perez and garver proved that even though he's not behind the plate because the texas rangers like jonah more defensively garver is still a very good dh option like he is a good bat to have in the lineup so he's one of my top targets trey so i'm with you on the mitch garver and i don't think signing alex wood is a bad idea to be helping out on the back of the rotation you still got to find two more starting pitchers well he did have Eduardo rodriguez so maybe that's a possibility you still got to find another starting pitcher Trey. so that's the whole thing with this offseason plan project and how tough it is again um based unless on my rough draft yeah.
2: yeah unless you really want to stick with michael kopek like that's the one case of just like yeah his knee was still a problem brian banister is going to help him out like that's uh whether the white Sox have suckered us into believing in michael kopek for one year too long by bringing in brian banister i think that'll be one of his biggest tests early is like a reality check for whether Kopek can actually start. And if Brian Baster can figure it out, who can?
1: Yeah, I, uh, I think he'll help him figure it out in the bullpen. That's, that's my plan right now for Michael kopek But again, this all starts Friday morning, October 27th on SoxMachine.com. Jim will have the template for you. You get copy and pasted use Google word or Microsoft word, whatever you want to use, fill it out, explain your strategy, your moves post it on socksmachine.com and let people review it. And they will definitely chime in and how they feel about your off season plan in the comment section. Again, there's only one bad idea out there. Hey, maybe you like that bad idea and you want to defend that bad idea. You go right ahead. And it it's again, just helps encourage a lot of conversation and it's a very fun exercise on socksmachine.com. I can't wait to see everyone's plans, Jim, and uh, I'm excited to get going.
2: Yeah, I, I always like feel like Paul, Paul Hollywood at this point, like just a technical challenge, issuing the time limit, the recipe list, and uh, a vague piece of advice, and then uh, leaving the tent. So yeah, yeah I'm a, Look for I always enjoy this part. Yes. Yeah. You want? You want? To uh, no flavor. soggy bottoms here.
1: well that will do it for this episode of the socks machine podcast as we officially kick off the off season plant project. Thank you to all those that watched the live stream on our YouTube page at youtube.com slash socks machine. If you did watch the video, please subscribe to our channel. We would greatly appreciate it as we'll continue to upload videos all off season long on our YouTube channel. And of course, with Socks Machine Live, we always take the audio from the video and upload it into our podcast feed so that works better for your schedule and mobility. To listen to us instead of watch us, you can subscribe to the Sox Machine Podcast wherever you listen to podcasts, such as Spotify and Apple Podcasts, also Google and Amazon Music. We are there as well. If you are on social media, we're also on social media as well. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, Threads, Blue Sky, whatever is out there at socks Machine. You can also follow me at socks Machine underscore Josh. If you enjoy our work and you want more, you can get more by becoming a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash Machine, where our Patreon supporters get exclusive content. They also get ad-free versions of both the podcast and website. And coming early November, we are going to be having a town hall with our Patreon supporters to share some of our plans for the upcoming 2024 calendar year at Sox Machine, kind of unveiling and pulling back the curtain uh, so they can see what's happening in the background that Jim and I are working on for next year and even this upcoming off-season. So if you're, again, if you like our work and you want to help support us, you can definitely do that at patreon.com slash Machine. Sox Machine Live is a production of SoxMachine.com. You're on for all things Chicago White Sox baseball and part of the Blue Wire podcast network. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for watching and listening.
3: Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about, but why? What do we know about magnesium?